Well, for those of you that don't know, uh, we like to walk through scriptures because that's one way for us to get the big picture of God's Word. Instead of fishing out a verse and building our lives around a verse, we go to the Word of God the way the Holy Spirit wrote the Word of God sequentially because it leads us from one understanding to the next understanding, teaching us from line upon line, precept upon precept, so that we can understand in full and not just in part. Amen? So, <coughs> exegetical teaching and studying is very important. So, we started walking through the book of John, and we started over a year ago, and I believe that the Word of God is ex works exponentially. So, in other words, it, it, it has an exponential power. If you understand the Word of God from beginning to end, throughout, in the sequence that it was delivered to us, your faith will grow exponentially with it, but your understanding will also be broadened in the same way. Some of the most, um, some of the most immature, untaught Christians you will find in the world are those who do not grow line upon line. They, grow, they, 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 they fish a verse out of context, and they build their direction, their life, and their understanding upon out of context understanding of scriptures. But I'm saying that to say this, that we walk through a, a chapter, and today we're walking through chapter 17, at least from verse 1 through verse 9. And um, this is, in fact, as many have claimed it to be, the crown chapter of all scriptures. Why? Because this is where Jesus is incrementally walking toward the cross, and this happens right before the cross. He is no, no longer just teaching His disciples, but He lifts up His eyes, and now He's praying to the Father for a whole chapter. It's a long prayer. Usually, when we hear Jesus speak to the Father, He says something like, Not my will, but yours be done. If this cup can pass by me, you know, yet not my will, but yours be done. In a sentence, in, a, in one statement. Those were the prayers that Jesus offered up. But here, He offers up a prayer that is a whole chapter. And so, it's very important for us to look into this crowning chapter of all scriptures, because here Jesus is transitioning out of His earthly ministry into His heavenly ministry, out of a prophetic ministry where He speaks on behalf of God, to the priestly ministry where He now represents man before God. On earth, He represents God. He's God's express image before man in heaven. He's your advocate. And this is what we will see Jesus initiate right here, His heavenly ministry. Now, before I do go through this chapter, simply because I know what's in it, I need to mention to you that here at Christ Nation, we are encouraging you to, to practice the honor principle. The honor principle is that those uh, uh, in Berea were more noble than the Thessalonians because, or the other way around, because... <laughs> Uh, because they heard Paul teach the word, received it with what? Joy. And then they went their, their way and studied the actual scriptures. Moses, all the way from Genesis to Malachi, studied the scriptures to see if what Paul was speaking in the epistles were in fact the truth. And so the same is what we call each and every person here. We're not here to try and project our opinion. We are here to try and establish a doctrine that we receive from Scripture. 
Truth ought to never come from a subjective, truth ought to never come subjectively, subjectively from a person. Truth comes objectively from God's written word, the closed canon. So when we hear from God, we're hearing from God through scriptures. And um, I like to say it this way, and it's a new thing for me to say because I want to articulate it in a better way. But here at Christ Nation, you are not required, you are not required to declare what I teach until you understand and agree that it's scriptural. That was what Paul did. He said they were more noble for saying, okay, I hear what you're saying. I'm going to go and search out the scriptures to see if what you said is actually in there. And then if I find that it's in there, then it's up to me to decide whether I'm going to be a Bible believer or not. Right? <laughs> so, here at Christ Nation, I teach the doctrines of grace. And I teach the doctrines of grace, or the doctrines as I see laid out in scriptures. And nobody here is required to believe those, but you are called to study and see for yourself if those are in fact in the Bible. Right? And so what we are saying is that when you come here, this is, these are the doctrines you will hear preached. That's why we say uh, we teach the doctrines of grace, because that's what you will hear when you come here. But you're not required to believe them in order to be a part of this church. Amen? It's going to be too cold in here. It already is. And um, so whatever that means to anyone, <laughs> whether it is you guys turn it warmer or you guys bring your blankets, I don't know. So throughout chapters 13 and 16, Jesus gives his, prince, his disciples promises. He gives his disciples warnings. Throughout these three chapters that we just walked through, chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, we see Jesus becoming very urgent with warning them, and He's promising them, and He's encouraging them, and He says to them, since the world hates me, Jesus says, the world will hate you. Since I am persecuted, therefore you will be persecuted. And as He's telling them all this bad news, that he was going to die, that he was going to leave them, and that he is being hated, and therefore they will be hated, and he was being persecuted, and therefore they will be persecuted. Then he says, and here's some good news, because I go to the Father, you will receive the Helper, the Holy Spirit. So there's your, there's your comfort. You will receive the Holy Spirit. And he says, and the Holy Spirit will come to be your Helper in the, in the sense that he will convict the world through your preaching. He will help you preach. He will support your preaching. And He will convict the world, the world you're preaching the gospel to, of what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And every time, from then on out, when the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit will convict sinners. When you preach the gospel, the Holy, you're doing your part, and the Holy Spirit's doing His part. Your part is preaching, his part is convicting. Your part is teaching. His part is convicting the world. The Holy Spirit does not convict by making somebody say, Oh, you know what? Yeah, I should, I should eat healthier. Oh, yeah, you know what? I, 
yeah, I should, I should probably have a more balanced life. I just not, I don't feel good about how unbalanced I am. That's not conviction. We talked about it last week. When the Holy Spirit convicts you, it's like a judge in a court of law. He convicts sinners. He declares them wicked sinners. He declares them hopeless and helpless before a perfect law, righteousness. He, he, declares them, he declares over them the death penalty, judgment, sin, righteousness, and judgment. That is what the Holy Spirit is telling a person you are preaching the gospel to. Well, no wonder their feathers are ruffled every time you preach the gospel. Because it's not just you at work trying to address them intellectually of their sin and that Christ is righteous and therefore you fall short of righteousness. You will not write with God. And since Satan already has judged, trust me, you're next. <laughs> Judgment. You know, the Holy Spirit's convicting them of those three things while you are preaching this good news. And this is where the misunderstanding has come. The misunderstanding where people say, well, unless it's good news, it's not God. Unless it's good news, it's not God. Well, you have to, you have to always define stuff, right? <laughs> good in what sense? Good to whom? Certainly not to the world, unless the world is birthed with eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to respond to the news that they're hearing, right? So because of the work of the Holy Spirit, that is why you see the response you do in the world. And Jesus told them, look, the Helper is coming. And trust me, you'll be hated. I'll give you an example. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit, this is why a Muslim can verbally and publicly damn an entire society to hell. And no one is really angered. It's just, yeah, well, that's what they believe. But the moment a Christian claims Jesus is the only way on any kind of talk show, late night talk show, guess what? Everybody's angry. Oh, my goodness. Have you noticed? As intolerant as Islam is, they're the ones that will be protected. <laughs> if you say anything against Islam, you're labeled what? Islamophobic. If you say anything against sin, as described in scriptures, get what? You have just committed a hate crime. And the reasons Christians will always receive hatred from the world for preaching the gospel is because the moment they preach, the Holy Spirit goes and He convicts and He convicts and He convicts. You are guilty. You're a wicked sinner. Convicts of sin. You're unrighteous, not right with God. And because of it, judgment is there. And that is why the world responds. The world will always respond when the true gospel is preached. But... When everybody fills, fills uh, rooms, they couldn't have rooms big enough to fill the crowds, and everybody's clapping, everybody's just loving, loving, loving on, on the guy preaching the gospel. Trust me, you have to put a question mark there. You have to put a question mark there. But because of this convicting work of the Holy Spirit, that's why when you preach the gospel, guess what the first response is from the world? Stop judging, right? That's a hate crime. Stop. So that is not because of what you said. Because why would they care? Why would they care if I am standing here proclaiming a 
a figment of my imagination. Why would they care? Well, they, don't, they do care. Why? Because it's not just me proclaiming the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit convicting them of the very gospel they're hearing. Not making them feel bad, convicting them. So that is a sign that the Holy Spirit has convicted that person the moment they respond that way. And the purpose of the Holy Spirit and the purpose of this conviction that the Holy Spirit brings to sinners is to call sinners to repentance. Call them to repentance. And then, of course, to allow other sinners to prove that they are, in fact, by choice, rejecting Christ altogether. You see, the preaching of the gospel will cause the Holy Spirit to convict the world to the point of either repentance or hatred. Remember, we talked about this before when Jesus walks into the room. Everything divides. Everything divides. Whenever Jesus enters, families divide. <laughs> Every, I mean, when Jesus said it is finished, the curtain was split in two. Every time Jesus arrives, it's sheep and it's goats. It's wheat and it's tares. Whenever Jesus arrives, it's always, he always divides. And the, th the thing that I'm trying to show you is when the gospel is preached, immediately something boils up in a person, they fall in one or two categories. Either they run to Christ and repent because they heard the gospel, or they harden their hearts and hate because of the gospel. You see, the sun has two different effects on both wax and mud. Wax melts in the sun. Mud hardens in that same sun. And this is something I've learned that's true for me, true for my family, and true for what I've seen in ministry life ever since 1992 when I went into the full-time ministry. I'm trying to do the math and I can't figure out how long that's been. But it's been a long time. And all I can see is that the harder those sunbeams blaze, the softer that wax melts. The harder those sunbeams blaze, the harder that mud becomes. Rock hard. So when you, when you see a, a church you know, where there's a really strong, pure word being, being preached with absolute clarity... When you hear that, you'll find a lot of soft hearts, actually. But, because the moment they see, oh, God said that, I'm done. I believe it. <laughs> you know, like, oh, that's a scripture. I bow my knee. When you, hear, when you walk into a church where there's a very, very clear and pure doctrine preached, you will find softness. Wax that has melted under the power of that sunlight. And what you will also find is that you will find that there's a tremendous amount of hardness against that group of soft-hearted people. But their hearts are soft towards God. The other groups of people, group of people, their hearts are hard towards God and those who love God and are loved by God. Does it make sense to you? So a hard word is good for you. Turn to your neighbor and say, a hard word is good. A pure word is good. 
What is a pure word? It's a word straight out of scriptures without being sugar-coated for the purpose of whoever's delivering it can be liked after delivering it, right? <laughs> so that's, that's what we have to guard against. Now, when we get to chapter 17, we see that it is, rem it is, it is remarkable in many ways. As a matter of fact, it's an ocean. It's an ocean of deep doctrine. You see, in this prayer, Jesus prays, we see that He's praying the real Lord's Prayer. This is, in fact, what we will call the Lord's Prayer from now on. Because the Lord's Prayer that we find in Matthew 6, verse 9, where it says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He prays this interesting little line, And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them, those who trespass against us. Question, did Jesus ever pray that prayer? Did he? No. He couldn't have. Did Jesus, could you imagine Jesus saying, please forgive me? <laughs> what would Jesus need forgiveness for if he was sinless? Jesus never prayed that prayer. He told his disciples, you pray in this way because you need this prayer. You pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So that wasn't the Lord's prayer. That was the disciples' prayer taught to them by the Lord. But here in Matthew, or in John, chapter 17, we, act, we find the actual prayer that the Lord prayed. And in this chapter, we also see Jesus gives us the need for ourselves to pray. We have to pray. Because if the Son of God, who controls all things, rules over all things, if the Son of God, who is sovereign over all things and know all things, if the Son of God, who has all power, if He is in a position of depending upon God to fulfill His words, how much more are we dependent upon God to fulfill His word toward us? Completely and wholly. So if Jesus prayed earnestly this way, how much more ought we not to pray earnestly this way? You see, Jesus had an earthly ministry, which I mentioned before, which at this point was coming to an end. And now he was about to initiate his heavenly ministry. He's about to make this transition because he is moments, he's standing moments before the cross, which he knows is coming. And let's look into this ocean of theology, starting in verse 1 of John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven... And he said, Father, the hour has come. Now that's the first time we hear him say that because throughout his ministry he kept saying, my hour has not yet come. Remember when his mom said to him, hey, there's no more wine. He said, my hour is not yet, here yet. Right? And multiple times Jesus said, my hour is not here, my hour is not here. However, here he says, the hour has come. Which is this hour? It is the hour of his death the hour of His burial and His resurrection followed by His ascension. The hour of His transition from His earthly ministry where He represented God to people to transition to heaven where He will now represent people to God. He was the prophet here on earth and He is the high priest there in heaven representing us. This is His hour. He's about to transition. 
He says, now glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Here we see Jesus not seeking to be glorified because of who He is. He's humbly asking to be glorified so that His Father may be glorified in Him. Verse 2, He says, since you have given Him authority over all flesh. Now Jesus is talking about Himself. He's talking about Himself and He says, Father, since you have given me, your Son, authority over all flesh. Let me just pause there for a second. Who is He referring to when He said all flesh? All humans ever born. The entire human race. Christ has authority over every man. Even if they want to deny the fact that He has authority over them, He still has authority over them because he cannot, they cannot stop Him from judging them the way He will be judging them in the last days. It's almost like shouting something as ridiculous as, you have your citizenship card. I'm an immigrant. I know how this works. It took me 10 years to get that thing. Worked my fingers to the bone, and then I thought, well, let me get married. And there she is. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> Here I am, a citizen. Benefits of all the benefits this country offers. And then I go, well, you're not my president. <laughs> it's like, all right, well, give up your citizenship and then say that again. All right? And in the same way, people, now you might not like that because we all feel like saying that, don't we? But uh, that doesn't mean... <laughs> This country in which you are a citizen doesn't have a president. Yes, there is a president. And oftentimes, let me just say this, that throughout time, God has raised up a king as judgment over a nation that rebelled against him. The king can become the judgment, God's judgment of a people. Saul, you see it throughout time. And so, it's the same way for the person that says, well, Jesus doesn't have authority over me. Well, Jesus is ruler of the universe. And this little peanut saying, well, he's not my authority. Yes, he is. Why? Because you're going to be held accountable by him, and you're going to give an account to him, and you can't escape that, that moment, right? So here it says, Jesus says, Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given your Son authority over all flesh. All flesh. Remember, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Let me ask you, what does the Bible say? Who is an authority on the earth? It says it. Now, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and preach the gospel. Here he says, glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him, your son, authority over all flesh, the entire human race. In order to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. All right, folks, remember what I said earlier. Receive the word with gladness. Go home and study the scriptures to see if it's in fact there. So Jesus is saying, Father God, 
Glorify me that I may glorify you. Because remember, you gave me authority over all human beings ever born so that I can save those whom you gave me out of, out of the human race so I can go and save them. What's he about to do? He's about to go to the cross. He's about to do what God purposed for him to do, and that is to save those God gave him. Are you following me? Who is this? Who are these people that God gave to Jesus? Because remember, he looked at the Pharisees and he says, you're not, you're not mine, you're of, the father, you're of your father the devil. He says, I have sheep, and they will hear me and they will follow, and I have also sheep from other camps, referring to other ethnic, ethnicity groups, not just Israel. He says, but you, you do not hear me because you are not mine. Remember, he told that to the, to the, to the Philistines. To the Pharisees. <laughs> so here, Jesus is saying, since you have given me authority over all flesh, all, all people, in order to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Who is that? His bride. God gave Jesus his bride. Like a father brings a bride to his son to marry. Who is his bride? His elect. Who is his elect? He's chosen. Somebody might say, no, 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 he's referring to the 12 disciples at this point. Well, the problem with that is that more than just the 12 were his true disciples at that point. What about Mary? You see, we conclude, therefore, that God the Father, even at this point in time, had given Jesus more than simply the 12. The important thing to see here is that Jesus said, the Father had given him authority over all flesh, and he was to give eternal life to all whom the Father had given him from that group. So in other words, here we have two groups. We have all flesh, the entire human race, and then we have all those whom the Father had given him, which is a group within the entirety. As a matter of fact, it mentions this very principle or this very truth many times throughout scriptures multiple times right here in the book of John I read it to you in John 17 2 since you have given him authority over, over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him John 17 6 hear this I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. John 17, 24. John 17, 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. You see, there is no doubt that out of the entire human race, there's this group, a chosen group, the elect God, Father gave to His Son, Jesus, as a gift. A gift to Jesus to save, to redeem, to feed, to protect, to keep. And of this chosen elect, Jesus said in John 6, verse 36 and 39, He says, All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whomever comes to me, I will never drive away. Verse 39 says, And this is the will of Him who sent me, 
that I shall lose none of all those he has given me. I shall lose none of all those he has given me. John 6, 39. John 6, 37 and 39. So let's pick it back up uh, from where we left at verse 2. John 17, verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. What does Jesus mean when he says that he will give them eternal life? He will give them eternal life. This eternal life is spiritual life. This eternal life is supernatural life. This eternal life is divine life. It is new life. It is abundant life. It is eternal life when you come alive unto God. He who receives eternal life comes alive unto God. How? He sees for the first time with his eyes the truth about God. He hears for the first time in his life the actual truth about himself and how he relates to God and his need for a Savior. For the first time, his heart beats for God. For the first time, his desires have been touched. And now he no longer desires, like Paul, to chase after and kill God's people, but to chase after and submit to the very God he was persecuting. Suddenly, there was a complete change in desire. This is somebody who has come alive unto God. It is the person who used to not value the Scriptures, not value the things of God, not value the body of Christ. There was very little value in it. They would rather do sports. They would rather be entertained. They would rather just do their own thing. And then suddenly something happened to them. And now they started desiring the very spiritual things they used to, have, they used to never have an appetite for. And then they started going like, well, you know, I've got to get back into prayer. How many of you aren't, don't pray enough? Quickly raise your hands. You feel like you don't pray enough. Good. You see? <laughs> and it's the person who has no desire that couldn't raise his hand because, like, didn't I pray last year? It was there around Christmas. Oh, it's Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, I said a prayer. That's good. You <laughs> see? But the one who has a deep desire for God is like, I need, I, need, I, need to, I need to get closer to God. I need to pray more. I need to get into the Word of God more. My worship isn't what it should. You know, I, God, I, I need to give you more and more and more and more of who I am and what I have. That is the person, suddenly their hearts got touched by God. You see, this is eternal life. It is eternal life when you come alive unto God. What is eternal life? It is the life of God Himself in the soul of man. You see, I've said it a million times, I want to say it again. It takes God to want God. It takes God to touch your heart in order for your heart to want God. The Bible says, now God is all the while at work within you, both to causing you to will, to will, to will, and to do His good pleasure. You see, you can, you, can will, you, can, you can will whatever you want, but you didn't choose your will. <laughs> Until God comes and He touches your will, suddenly you desire Him. Your will is to choose Him. Eternal life speaks of both the quantity and the quality of life.
It is life as God has life. And it's having that life forever. Then he says in verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you. Okay. I've got to just point something out to you. This is eternal life, that they know you. I have a question for you. Who is the they he is pointing to? Absolutely. He said, I'm coming to save those whom you have given me. And I will give them eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they will know you. This is eternal life, that they will know you. Realize that the know there is in the present tense. Knowing God now is eternal life. Eternal life is not something you will one day receive. It is to know God now in the present. That is to have eternal life. Otherwise, it wasn't eternal. It was temporal unto the future because you don't currently have it, right? Neither can it go away because if it could go away, it wasn't eternal. Then he says, to know you. You see, many people think that salvation equates forgiveness and God's love equates... Well, let me, let me say this. Uh, you are saved because you are forgiven, but you are forgiven because God loves. People put that equation together because God loves you, therefore He forgives you. And because He forgives you, therefore you are saved. Well, that's not really a true biblical version of salvation because the Bible says, for God so loved the whole world, right? God loves everybody. But does every, is everybody saved? No. It's not the love of God that saves people. It's the love of God that allowed Christ to come and do what Christ has done. For God so loved the world that He sent His Son. He loved so much that He sent His Son. And those who believe in the Son... That's not an invitation given. That's a distinction made. And those who believe in the Son, he doesn't say, and those who would like to, who choose to believe in the Son, no, he says, and those who believe. The original says, and all the believing ones shall have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that all the believing ones shall not perish but have eternal life. It's a distinction made. It says, and these ones who believe, these ones I have given to you as a gift, your bride that I've brought to you, that you have come and you've paid the price for her, you've paid the dowry, you've purchased her with your blood, you are taking her for yourself. They were given hearts. Let me ask you something. This, this came to me the other day. I hope you guys are following what I'm saying. But he says, I will make a new covenant with you, right? And he says, and this new covenant that I make with you is what? I will take out the stony heart, and I will give you a heart of flesh, right? This is the covenant that he's going to make. Let me ask you, did you believe and therefore he gave you a heart of flesh or did he give you a heart of flesh so that you could believe? <laughs> right? You have the answer. You are born again so that you can believe. You don't believe in order to be born again. God gave you a heart that believes. He gave you a repenting heart Repentance is a fruit, not a work. 
It's a fruit of a truly born-again individual. Unless you are born again, you cannot even see. Unless you are born from above, you couldn't even see. But when He births you in you, you now have eyes that see, ears that hear. You have a, a mind that is no longer at enmity with God, but a mind that turns and repents and goes like, I need Jesus. I need a Savior, and there's only one I can run to. It's Christ. Not only do you have eyes that see, ears that hear, and a mind that sees your need for your Savior, but you have a heart that now can respond. It's no longer a heart of rock that cannot beat. It's a heart of flesh that beats for God and a heart that believes and turns, repents and believes. All right, so God gives you a heart so that you can believe. He doesn't say, okay, when you start believing with that heart of stone, I will give you a heart of flesh. Ordo salutis, order of salvation is important to understand. Because when you see yourself alive unto God, it gives you a lot of comfort. Because <laughs> sometimes you look at, it gives you a lot of comfort. <clears throat> Let me stop there. So he says, and this is eternal life, that they, referring to those whom God has given to His Son, that they know you in the present. And this brings us to the idea of salvation. This is eternal life. You see, the removal of sin is wonderful. How many of you were glad the day you know that you were forgiven? Yeah? Oh, thank God that you were forgiven. Somebody says, why are you still a believer? Well, one reason, I have many, but one is very clear. Where else would I take my unresolved sin? Who else could I go to? Every other religion except Christianity requires for you to work your way up into being right with God. Every single religion is works-based, with the exception of Christianity. And I've already discovered that I can't work my way into God's good books. So where else can I take my unresolved guilt? To Christ and Christ alone, the one who promised that He paid for me. You see, so the removal of sin is wonderful, but it is necessary to step, uh, you know, it, it is a necessary step for us to know God. You see, forgiveness is great, but it, it, is, it is pertinent for us because without it, we can't know Him. And He said here, eternal life is knowing God. Well, we need forgiveness in order to know God. So we need forgiveness in order to have salvation. Forgiveness is wonderful. Forgiveness is necessary. But that is not salvation. You see, imagine if we were forgiven of our sins, yet we didn't know God. How could we be saved from the sin-causing separation that we have with God? All the accomplishments at the cross is necessary. Necessary in order for us to be relationally reconciled to God. Forgiveness is not the end goal. Reconciliation is the end goal. Forgiveness is what makes reconciliation possible. And I'm saying that because for any Christian who thinks that, oh, I'm a Christian because I've been forgiven... No, you're a Christian because you have been reconciled with the Father. That's the end goal. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes along this way. No one comes uh, to God except for in this way. So, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. That's the end goal. Coming to the Father. <clears throat> 
but through me. Why? Because he's the one that helps us be forgiven. I will end with this example here. As, um, I will end with this example here as far as forgiveness is concerned. Uh, in South Africa, we had somebody work for us in our house. There were a few of us that shared this house, and there was one person that we all employed, and they worked for us. Now, this person that worked for us, I owned the house, and this person that worked for us actually uh, was a fantastic worker. To this day, um, I can't tell you that we ever saw that person steal anything, never late, never leaving early, um, always have a great attitude. This was the perfect employee. <laughs> and they did many things around the house and for everybody personally. But what I can tell you is, is there anything that I needed to forgive that lady for? Well, no. There's nothing that person did that required me to forgive them. Forgiven for everything. Question, if I had to pass on, who's going to inherit my house? The person that didn't need forgiveness or the one that is in my family? Yeah. Who inherits? In the same way, forgiveness alone is not what you need. You need the imputed righteousness. You see, there's a double imputation when it comes to righteousness. Jesus died upon a cross, and all of your sins were placed upon Him so that you could be forgiven. And then God's righteousness was placed upon you. There was an imputation of sin unto Christ, and there was an imputation of righteousness unto you. And that made you, He gave you the rights to be children of God. The Bible says, He gave you the right to be children of God. And that is what Jesus did for those whom the Father had given Him. He died so that their sins could be imputed upon Him, so that He could be forgiven. But that wasn't the end goal. And then God's righteousness was imputed upon them, making them children so that they could become heirs along with Christ. Now Jesus moves, transitions out of His earthly ministry he transitions to his, his eternal ministry in heaven. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he acted as a prophet, representing God to man. And now in his heavenly ministry, he functions as a high priest, representing man to God. In 1 John 2 verse 1, it says, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Watch this. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is our high priest. He is our advocate. He's always representing you before the Father, even now, constantly defending you from all accusations made against you. Just like the high priest during the times of, time of Israel in the desert, the high priest would take the two goats, the one goat he would slaughter, he would take the blood of that goat, and he would place it before God on the altar. In the same way, Jesus right now 
is your high priest. He is in heaven, and he's showing he sacrificed to the Father. Not that goat, but he sacrificed. That goat appeased God's wrath against Israel for a year. Jesus is sacrificed before the Father in heaven today, swallows up God's wrath against your sins eternally. So today you have an advocate in heaven defending you. You have a high priest in heaven representing you. Isn't that exciting? Amen. Did you get something out of the word?